Mercy Hill Church. It's good to see all of you, whether you are on the live stream with us uh, and participating in worship from home or whether you're here in person. Uh, we're thankful to be able to continue to celebrate Christmas today. You may have thought that it was odd that we were singing Christmas songs in January, but sometimes the church will adopt certain practices uh, from church history but we pick and choose certain ones and then they don't quite make sense. And so if we celebrate Advent in waiting for Jesus in anticipating His coming, it leaves us very little time to celebrate Him if we don't honor the church calendar in looking at the fact that Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and then Christmas is the 12 days from December 24th forward. And so we can celebrate Jesus even today in January, and it gives us an opportunity to kind of step outside all the consumerism and gift giving and see Christmas for what it is, which is a celebration of the person of Jesus, his incarnation and his coming. And we continue that celebration today. We're going to see a fascinating story. It is wrapped in a shroud of mystery and obscurity. The wise men come and they step into the life of Jesus for just a brief moment and then they're gone again. But in their story, they teach us something about the character and the plan of God, not just for human history in the past, but for us today, especially for our lives in 2021. There's something that God wants to teach us through the story of the wise men and it's illustrated through a point that we so often forget. Whether we are not yet believers, whether we're just kind of curious about this person of Jesus and we've come to find out more, if we just see him as a good man, or maybe you've known Jesus for a long time, but we all fail to forget this most important point. And it's the big idea for today. The wise men teach us that God desires to be found. God desires to be found. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not an absent father. He's very near. He's involved in our lives. He's personal. And because of Jesus and the incarnation, he even understands. And he uses culture and what seems familiar in our lives in order to communicate uh, what is divine. In the wise men's lives... He's going to use the ordinary in order to communicate the extraordinary. And he does the same for us. So let's pick up with this story in Matthew chapter 2. I want to look at verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And we've come to worship him. As you know, Joseph and Mary have traveled for a census. And they've traveled 85 to 100 miles from Galilee down to Bethlehem. It's enough to make any pregnant woman uh, go into labor, right? And Jesus is born in a stable. Most likely it would be something that maybe resembled a cave. Where animals would be kept. And Matthew's gospel tells us that there are magi from the east. 
And we don't know exactly where they came from. Most likely somewhere like Persia or Babylon, but we can't be specific. But what we do know is that the Christmas, uh, the Christmas carol gets it all wrong. They say, we three kings of Orient are. But the Christmas hymn should say, we three kings of Orient are not. Because they're not kings at all. They're magi. In fact, they would be looked on as pagans and they would be looked on as evil men. Uh, we don't have time this morning, but I could take you to a dozen places throughout the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, in which men like these magi were seen as those who were evil soothsayers. Like, like King Saul who approached a witch and he was condemned by God. These men would have been seen uh, as evil pagans. They were skilled in philosophy and medicine and natural science. They were soothsayers, interpreter of dreams. They offered advice to kings and those who were in power. But something unique happens in this story. It's something that we're familiar with but that we don't quite understand. They see a star that appears to them... And in this day and time, people look to astrology in order uh, to gain their belief system. They thought that they could foretell the future through the stars. And so they believed a person's destiny was already settled by the star under which they were born. It's a lot like following your horoscope, but much deeper. And so they see this new star in the sky. And when a new star appeared, it was often believed that this new star was heralding the birth of a significant person in the land over which the star shone. And so they understood how the stars pursue these very direct and very uh, predictable courses that represent the order of the universe. But in their worlds, as they looked to the heavens, they saw this sudden suddenly this brilliant star that breaks into the seemingly ordered pattern of the world. And all of a sudden, it's like God is announcing something special. And so they began a journey to find out what God is up to. The wise men seem to have seen the star at the time of Jesus' birth. And it prompts them to go and find this predicted king that they've read about in ancient in ancient writings, and they desire to go and to worship Him. Pick up the story in verse 3, because the story takes a very dark turn at this point. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In verse 3, the story gets very dark because Herod, the scriptures say he is troubled, which is a mild translation. Um, probably a clearer translation would be to say that he is insanely suspicious or that he is terrified. And oddly enough, all of Jerusalem with him. Likely that refers to the religious leaders that Herod had put in place who had become just fine with the system in which they had power and they had control there in Judea. 
Now, to know a little bit about Herod and why I say the story gets so dark, you have to understand who Herod is. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor who had appointed Herod, and he had a famous pun in which he said that it would, he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Why would he be, rather be Herod's pig than his son? Because everyone who got close to Herod ended up dead. If you think about King Herod, you know that he had um, a lot of, that he was known for, for all of the architecture and the temple and the buildings, but much of that was done as much out of fear as it was out of vision. Anyone who got close to Herod died. You start out with his brother-in-law, his wives, his sons, hundreds of family members and servants. Herod was such uh, an extremely vicious and hostile ruler that as the end of his life drew near and he was sick and he knew that, that death, he was on death's doorstep, Herod actually feared his death would be met with joy in Judea. And so he took the most popular men from every village throughout Judea, he took them to Jericho and he had them locked in the Hippodrome there in Jericho. The Hippodrome was the, the famous stadium where they would do uh, chariot races around the outside of it and people would come and cheer. And he had all the most famous men of the land locked in uh, the Hippodrome there in Jericho with the orders that on the day of his death that they would all be slaughtered. So that there would be a guarantee that there would be weeping and wailing throughout all of Judea. That's the kind of man that Herod was. Thankfully, uh, that order was never carried out. But Herod was such a vicious uh, ruler. And he calls together uh, what we might jokingly call the pastors uh, and the seminary professors of his day. The chief priests and the scribes. And he wants to know, who are, uh, what are the wise men talking about? Now, obviously, if Herod asked this question, Herod, good Jew or bad Jew? Bad Jew. Because he was, he was half Jew and half Idumean, but he doesn't know one of the most famous prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And very easily, the scribes and Pharisees, they repeat to him, well, Micah 5.2 tells us, and they, they quote Micah 5.2, we see it in verse 6, in which they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everyone knew this prophecy. The little town of Bethlehem might not be that, uh, that big of a town or that well known. But in a sense it had a rich history. It meant house of bread. You do a whole research project on what that means for both the past and the future. As Jesus would come from the house of bread. Where he would be born in Jerusalem. But uh, where he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was also known in the Old Testament. Uh, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried here. Boaz took Ruth in Bethlehem. Leading to the line of Jesse. Where Samuel would be anointed. Uh, he would anoint David king. Uh, king of Jerusalem there at Bethlehem. And on a side note for those people who would say, Jesus is just a good man. He came, and he came as a good man, and history has recognized him as someone who sought to fulfill all the prophecies of a Messiah. Here would be a question for you if you're curious about Jesus. How did Jesus fulfill the prophecy that was quoted in Micah 5-2, hundreds of years before he would be born, that he would be born in Bethlehem? How did Jesus fulfill that prophecy when he was just a baby? And he had absolutely no leadership over where he would be born. 
It's a good question to ponder and consider as you look at all that God has done in bringing us His Son. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's interesting to see how everyone responded. Herod responds really with hatred and hostility. He says he wants to go and worship, but if you read through the rest of Matthew 2, unfortunately what you see is that when the wise men find Jesus, and they're warned not to go back to Herod, but they go back to the east another way, what Herod does is he comes in and he slaughters every child that's two years of age or younger, not only in Bethlehem, but throughout all the region. That's how Herod responds. Interestingly, also, the chief priests and the scribes, they respond indifferently. Think about that. Those who knew, who were closest to the Scriptures, who had the most information and the most resources, respond indifferently. This should be a warning to us that we guard our hearts against the wealth of resources and knowledge. Knowledge doesn't give us a tender heart. Knowledge gives us a hard heart if we don't respond in obedience to all that Jesus calls us to. Now, we finish the story in verses 9 through 12. And then I want us to turn and think about ourselves and our lives in 2021. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I don't understand how the star worked. I've read a lot of Jewish literature, uh, a lot of rabbinic literature. Uh, I've studied Alfred Edersheim and many others who have written about the star. Quite honestly, we don't know how it worked. They had previously, what they had previously seen, it seems began to move until it stopped over the house where Jesus was living with Mary and Joseph. Now, if you know anything about astronomy... You know that a star does not appear over a house. (laughs) How could it be that specific? And the answer is, I simply don't know. We don't know. Some scholars believe the light that appeared to be a star was actually appearing to the wise men as they uh, got closer, that it was actually the glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory of the Lord appearing to them. And this wouldn't be uncommon. For God to offer direction. He appeared before Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so it wouldn't be out of his character to appear in this way. No matter the explanation, don't miss out on this fact. Because oftentimes, I think the scriptures, uh, they don't give us all the details. They leave this this moment in which we have to figure out if we're going to respond to the mystery that we meet, if we're going to respond in faith, because God meets us in the mystery of our lives, and He invites 
us to respond in faith. Don't miss the fact that God desires to be found. That's one of the main things that the story of the wise men teach us. God desires to be found and that we should rejoice, that we should cheer up because we are far worse than we could ever imagine that we are. We are far greater pagans and far greater sinners and far more more evil people than we could ever imagine that we are. But God desires to be found and so cheer up because God's grace is much more infinite than we could ever imagine so much it's so infinite that he appears and that he makes himself known to pagans those who are the furthest from him those who have the least amount of knowledge and information and he draws them to himself Listen, make no mistake about it. The overarching story of the Bible is not the story of the desire of man to be with God. Please, do not give ourselves that much credit. Think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, as they sinned against God. What did they do? They ran and they hid, which is the natural shame that we all face when we sin. When we do what's wrong, we want to hide. Whether that's putting the covers over our head or whether it's just shutting ourselves out from community and relationships. But what did God do? God came and He sought them out in the midst of their shame. Because God desires to be found. The overarching story of the Bible is the story of a father who desires to be known by his children. He desires to be found. I want to remind you, I tell you this all the time, the most frequent promise of the Bible is not the promise, I will forgive you. The most frequent promise of the Bible is not the promise, I will save you from hell. The most frequent promise of the Bible is not the promise of life after death. Although the Bible does promise that God will forgive us and that God will save believers from hell and that God will offer us eternal life. However, the most frequent promise of the, of the Bible is the promise, I will be with you. God holds up His end of the bargain. He will be with us. We are in relationship with God because God was the first one to move on our behalf. God has offered us far more grace than we could ever imagine. God shows up in the middle of our world and He initiates a relationship. Isaiah 9 Verse 2 is a prophecy that speaks to this. The prophet Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus then quotes that prophecy in referring to himself in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, and he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Most of us wrongly think that we have come to God, that it's up to us to find God. The truth is that God is constantly seeking a relationship with us and he uses people and circumstances and events even hearing our prayers and he opens people's hearts to himself 
In the story of the wise men, God illustrates his desire to be found. God is glorious and he wants to be worshipped. Now as we end this story today, I want to flip the coin. As we think about 2021, and I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about the story of the wise men and this principle that God desires to be found. And I want you to ask the question, if God desires to be found, are you personally experiencing a life with God? And if not, what's hindering you from experiencing God? In your life, personally, as you look back at 2020, listen to the Spirit's voice. What's hindering you from experiencing God? Life with God. As you think about that, and as you listen to the Spirit, I want to offer, and I want to encourage you to consider something you may have never considered in really affecting your relationship with God. And I'm going to spend ten minutes talking about it, and then I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to spend ten minutes talking about a word that you probably have, maybe have never thought that this might have something to do with your relationship with God. It's the word technology. Stay with me for a minute. Let me encourage you to consider something you may have never considered before. Because adults, on average, are spending about 10 to 13 hours a day on screen time. That went up between 2019 and 2020. The percentage went up by at least a full hour, if not more. But here's what's concerning. Between 2019 and 2020, the percentage of U.S. adults who say they use the Bible daily dropped from 14% to 9%. Now that might not sound like much to you, but here's the problem. That percentage had held at about 13.7% for the last decade. And over the last year, that percentage dropped by 5 points. It's huge. Now here is what I want... um, at least to bring into our awareness. Within the church, I don't think we talk about technology enough. I think we talk about, I think we talk about lust and pornography and when jealousy and envy. And we talk about gossip and greed and money. But we rarely talk about technology. And here's what I want you... Uh, please don't hear me saying that you need to throw um, this supercomputer out that you carry around in your pockets that we call phones... They're not phones anymore, folks. You rarely even talk on them. They're supercomputers. But please don't hear me saying that you need to throw this away. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me saying that you need to get off all of social media. You might, but that's not what I'm suggesting. Technology has brought many great things into our lives. Some of you right now are worshiping and participating with us via a live stream because of technology. Praise Jesus for that. But make no mistake about it, technology is changing us in ways that are both good and ways that are bad. Let me illustrate that for you. One of my kids used his Christmas money and he bought an electric guitar for Christmas. Now, I was talking to him about technology and I said, Do you realize that if you would have bought this guitar back in the 90s when I was growing up? So I went, I went to high school, I'll tell my age, I went to high school in the early 90s, Okay. And so if you want to buy an electric guitar in the early 90s, what do you do? You go to a music shop. And you go to that music shop and you meet some guy that no one else ever meets unless they walk in the music shop. And, and they talk to him about what guitars he likes and what sounds good. And you play some guitars. 
And then you take this guitar and you buy a paper book. And you buy some picks and you walk out of the store with it and you try to figure out how to play some chords and you have no idea if you're doing it right or not. You don't even know if you really bought the right guitar or not. You just heard what the guy told you in the store. And and so you eventually get together with a friend and they tell you how to tune your guitar and they tell you whether you're playing the chords right or not. And you begin to learn from them and all of a sudden all of this has been done where? In community. Now, my son bought an electric guitar. How do you think he bought it? Well, he got on YouTube and he looked at the reviews and he figured out which beginner's guitar is best. And then he got online and he ordered it. And then he got on YouTube again and he can listen and see if it's in tune and he can see how to play it. And he's done it all alone. Now, is, there, is that good or bad? I, I don't know. Maybe it's neutral. But it's not community. Right? And so as you begin to think about that technology, it is changing us. There are good parts of technology and bad parts. I promise that technology is changing us. It's one of the reasons why 18, 19, and 20-year-olds are now getting their driver's license. I had an appointment the day I turned 16 and to go... Uh, to the DMV and to take my, my driver's license test because I wanted to get out of the house. Why are kids not wanting to get out of the house? Because they can get on a screen. And in a moment, they're in touch with all their friends. And if they need to go somewhere, why bother with a car? In five minutes, they can press a button on an app and they can have a car in five minutes. Sometimes in 30 seconds, depending on where they live, in front of their house. And they can go anywhere they need to go, all without having a driver's license. I promise, technology is changing the way in which we live. And I believe the church needs to ask the question, in what ways is it affecting us that are good, and in what ways is it affecting us that are bad? Let me just ask you a couple of questions. Do you reach for Facebook before you reach for the Bible? Seriously, do you? One person said it this way. He said, for the person addicted to social media, the question in the morning is, are you going to look at it before you use the restroom or while you're using the restroom? You can laugh at that. That's kind of funny. Or you might not want to laugh at that because it might hit too close to home for some of us. As you begin to think about this, if, it become, if social media becomes a pattern, then it says something about where we're garnering truth from. And where we're looking for satisfaction and direction. And I'll just be as clear as I can in saying it this way. Folks, if you're on your screen for 13 hours a day, and if you crawl in bed at night with your phones and stare at them until you gloomily try to fall asleep, and then you have this fleeting thought that I'm just too tired to open the Bible today and to read God's Word, you're kidding yourself if you think you're a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that you might not have met Jesus in the past and made a decision to follow him. But if the pattern of your life is to give yourself to the truths that are on the internet and social media all day long, but that you make no time in your life for prayer or the study of the word, then you are not actively following Jesus because Jesus calls us to himself and God desires to be found. And that's in the present tense. 
Folks, I don't care what your attitude is toward 2021. God has amazing things in store that He desires to accomplish. And it's simply up to us whether we will pursue Him in joining Him in those works or whether we will continue to live in our pessimism, in our sarcasm, blurried with blurried eyes, paying attention to a hundred people's lives at about an inch deep, all while failing to ever pursue Jesus and to know Him and worship Him and walk with Him. When you think about that, I want to recommend two things to you. And um, The first, is, I don't think I've ever recommended a Netflix documentary. Uh, I want to recommend that you watch The Social Dilemma. Netflix has published it, and I'm not in any way suggesting that you buy into everything that this documentary suggests. I don't buy into everything it suggests. But I'm merely saying that you must become aware of how technology is changing you. Because technology is changing the pattern of the way in which you live, whether you realize it or not. And it is changing it in a powerful way. The second resource that I would encourage you to read is a little book by John Eldridge. Some of you will recognize that name from decades ago. He wrote Wild at Heart back in the 90s and it was really a popular book. And John Eldridge has written a little book called Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. And in it, he describes the impact of technology on the soul. Here's the deal. We are all, as followers of Jesus, are just as human beings, we're created with permeable souls. And what I mean by that is that the lives of other people affect your soul and your life. It's why when you walk into a funeral home and you see someone in tears who is grieving who you've never met in your life, what happens to your heart? You're saddened. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you be saddened about someone's grief that you've never met and that you don't know? Because your soul is permeable. You feel the emotions of others who are around you. What happens to your soul when all day long you're, you're scrolling like a, like a, a, kind of like a slot machine? You're, slow, you're scrolling through your social media feed and you're going, Man, they're, they're having a good time at the beach. Man. Wow, he kind of looks buff. Man, she's really lost a lot of weight. Wow, man, look. Gosh, he bought his kid a really nice car. What, what happens to your soul when hundreds of stories are impacting your soul on a daily basis and you're responding to those stories? I can guarantee you that your soul was not built to carry the emotions of all of those stories at a single time. And I just encourage you, consider how is technology affecting you? God desires to be found. What's hindering you when it comes to technology? In, in, in meeting with God on a daily basis. For me, there are a couple things that I've done. Uh, I've deleted social media from my phone. I can still go to the browser and find it, but it's not that quick, easy, push the button And so it was just something that I needed to do. So I'll still be on social media from time to time, but I'll have to get on my browser. It's a little tougher. And the second thing that I've done, I've been meaning to do this for over a year. I bought a digital clock and put it in my bedroom. And about an hour before I go to sleep, I just put my phone aside, keep it far away from me, 
And I don't look at it again until the next morning, until I'm ready to look at my phone. And in that way, I'm in control of my calendar and I'm in control of my day rather than my phone being in control of me. Those are just two things. I'm not suggesting that you do those things. Those are two things that I found that were important for me to be able to pursue God and not let technology be such a huge distraction for me. As you make plans for 2021, just consider the story of the wise men. How unusual that those who are most familiar, those who are closest to the prophecy, they were unmoved. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were even distressed and terrified. John chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 gives witness to why this is. Both in Jesus' day and today. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Do you know Jesus? Do you follow him on a daily basis? Do you pursue him? Do you treasure him? What does your screen time say about that? All around us, the vast majority of people don't follow Jesus. Hear that, church. All around us, the vast majority of Americans do not follow Jesus. 91% of them are not interested in studying His Word on a daily basis. 91% of them are not interested in hearing His voice on a daily basis. 91% of them are not interested in following Him. In bowing their knee to Him. In seeing their daily routines transformed by the life of Jesus and the joy that He gives. They may know who He is. They may even show up at church at Christmas time, but they've never surrendered their lives to the Lord. They might give Jesus a nod at Christmas, but they don't worship Him throughout the year. And one of the most incredible parts of this story is the fact that the wise men believed that even though they didn't know the whole story, they believed. I'm, not, I'm sure they had a lot of questions. I don't even think they had good theology. For crying out loud, they're following a star? Like, where do you find that in the Bible? Um, in, in order, a way that we come to know God? Well, it worked here. They started reading the Bible. They probably saw prophecies that Daniel had written. Daniel, who had ruled in Persia. And he had written of this coming Messiah. And they just took the next step. And I want to encourage you to continue searching. Continue searching. No matter where you are with God. God cares more about being found than we care about finding Him. The story of the Bible illustrates that. He will continue to meet us in the middle of our world in order to offer us direction. He promises us that. Hebrews eleven six tells us that. It says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God rewards those who seek Him. Maybe today you need to make a decision to really surrender your life to God. Maybe today you need to simply pray, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died on the cross in my place. Save me. Give me life. I surrender my life to You. Maybe today you need to cheer up and realize that you're far worse than you think you are. We all are far worse than we think we are. But we can also cheer up because God's grace is far greater than we've ever imagined. And so as we think about the story of the wise men and we think about pursuing God and His desire to know us, if God desires to be found, are 
you experiencing life with Him? What's hindering you from experiencing God? I want to encourage you. Discuss your answers in community as you think about this. As you think about how technology impacts you. Listen, these are important conversations that have to be, they have to be worked out in community. They can't be worked out on our own. And they're also important conversations that we are reminded that the Holy Spirit empowers us to hear God's voice and to follow Him in obedience. So as you listen to the Spirit today, be reminded, as Jack Miller would often say, also cheer up, God's Spirit works in your weakness. So it's only when we're weak that we see where the Spirit of God is strong. God wants to meet you in 2021. God has great things that He desires to do. God desires to see men and women and children saved in Midtown Memphis in 2021. Do you believe that? God does. He promises us in His Word. He says the fields are white for harvest. He's just looking for laborers. God desires to see many people saved in the suburbs in 2021. Folks, there's plenty of sin in the suburbs too. God desires to see disciples made. God wants you to look more like Him in 2021 than you looked like Him in 2020. God desires for you to give Him great glory in this next year. And His Word promises us that He desires to be found and that He will reward those who seek Him and that He will give us, just like He gave the wise men, He will give us great glory joy as we continue on this journey. Listen, I want to invite you, just start this conversation in your missional communities. How has technology affected me in good and bad ways? What are changes that I need to make? And then Jared's going to come next week and he's going to preach and remind us of the beauty of finding Jesus in the scriptures. We're going to talk about uh, just renewing our commitment to the community Bible reading journal. And it's a Bible reading plan that that we've embraced as a community and a family of believers in which we read a a chapter from the Old Testament each day and a chapter from the New Testament each day. And we end up reading through the whole Bible in three years. And we do that together and then discuss that in community. And Jared's going to remind us of that next week. And then I'm going to come back after that. I'm going to take six weeks and we're going to talk about revival and what it means for the church to seek God In order to find true joy, to be reminded of God's grace, that God might awaken our hearts to who we are as kids who've been adopted into a wonderful family, who've been saved. And I'm praying that God will remind us of some things that we've heard in the past, but that we've forgotten, and that He'll begin to transform who we are. So I'm excited about the year ahead. I pray that you'll join us with that excitement. I pray that you'll listen to the Spirit. And not not rest in shame and not walk in shame, but that you'll listen to the Spirit and know that that 2021 is going to be a terrible year if you do it on your own. But that if you lean into the Spirit, that He empowers us in our weakness and that the Spirit gives us great joy. Let's pray together and invite the band to come up and lead us in this last song. Father, we're thankful uh, for all the ways in which you draw us to yourself. God, would you please forgive us for, um, God, just how forgetful we are. God, that we, are, uh, that we forget your grace. God, that we get um, so 
locked into our circumstances. God, that some of us have gotten so wrapped up in this last year that we think that um, our circumstances are are always going to be the same. But no, God, you have great plans. Great ways that you are at work, even today, in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us great joy as we pursue you. Spirit, I pray that you would continue to convict each one of us about the ways in which, um, God, that we look like the world, about the ways in which we've taken our lives back and the way in which uh, you want to transform us to be more like Jesus, to refine us. And God, would you give us faith to believe that that really does bring greater joy? Greater joy than uh, all the worldly pursuits that, that uh, our minds become fascinated with? And God, we know that this next year that we need you. Oh Lord, we need you. And so God, as we sing now, would you speak to us? God, I just want to pray over believers who are here who don't really think that you speak anymore. God, I, I just, I'm grieved and I'm saddened, God, that how much you must be grieved that you have children who don't think that you care for them anymore, who don't think that you give them direction anymore, who don't listen to your wisdom and who are lost and alone and anxious and sad. Holy Spirit, would you, in your kindness, but in your power, speak to us now as we listen. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name.